What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy podcast, the show that helps you get rich, happy, successful, and free with a capital F in your life and business. Tomorrow, I'm finally posting a longer solo show to where I can update you guys on the last month for me. Uh, it's been a wild 30 days. I wrote an entire book. <laughs> so I wrote a 65,000 word book in the last 30 days, and I booked a trip to Europe again. So I'm recording this on Tuesday. And Thursday, I'm going to hop on a plane and I'm going to, uh, let's see, Ibiza, then I'm doing Croatia Yacht Week, then I'm doing Montenegro, and then Sicily and Italy, and then hanging around there. So I'm going to be gone for about probably a month and a half this time, and then still, as always, be producing the show while I travel. But for the first two weeks, I'm going to actually have vacation and enjoy myself for once. So... Today's episode features one of our internal Action Academy calls with my buddy Aaron Amuchastegui. Aaron has flipped over a thousand properties and he owns 850 single family homes himself. In today's episode, we are going over a macro real estate market update since Aaron is the host of the wildly popular Real Estate Rockstars podcast and is talking to realtors in every single market across the country. So he loves data. He loves knowing what the trends are, what areas of opportunity there are coming up for us to allocate our capital towards. And then in the back half of the episode, we're talking about how he buys houses at foreclosure at the courthouse steps. So it's a fantastic episode. It went a little bit long. So it's about an hour and 20 minutes. You're going to want to stick around for each and every minute of that. And as always, if you are interested in being on these calls, being able to do the Q&A, hanging out with Aaron and all of us in Costa Rica while we go hike around waterfalls and stuff like that, surf out in the ocean in Costa Rica for the Action Academy community, click the link in the show description and book an intro call to learn more. Now, without any further ado, Mr. Aaron Amuchastegui. Share screen. Aaron, you should be good to go, brother man. Boom. Cool, cool. All right, everyone, welcome to the Action Academy Monday call. We are now recording. We're now live for all of those that are listening in the future or in the future modules. Today, we got Mr. Aaron Amuchastegui. Aaron, say hello to the people and give a quick introduction of who you are and what the heck you do, brother. What's up, everybody? The, I'm Aaron. I live in Austin, Texas. The um, yeah, Brian, he he undersold me on my intro a little bit. He said I I bought 850 houses at auction. I own 850 right now uh, out in the greater Texas area, but I've but I've bought a couple thousand at auction. I was a flipper for a long time before I was I was working for my money before I was smart enough to invest in long term stuff. I've gone broke uh, three times, maybe four times. Gone from millions to zero, millions to zero. Knock on wood. I think I figured it out on the fourth time around on uh on how to avoid uh that going forward so i have um i've got investments in real estate i've got uh, a podcast about real estate i have a few software companies that are real estate and foreclosure related that kind of you know everything started getting added on as i you know once i grew one business it became really easy to start adding on uh some of these others i love to go have a lot of fun too i love to I love to travel. I love to party. I love to burn money on things like the, but that was not like that for a really, really long time. Um, and so the, there's, there's a lot of different ways kind of to learn that. So, um, so anyway, I, I think it's going to be fun for us to get to talk about a lot of stuff. Real estate is my favorite thing to talk about. The real estate market is my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, I love to get online and do predictions. I love to get online and tell people exactly the business plays that I'm doing when I do them. 
And then I get to go back afterward and kind of say what were really big in the predictions. I made some really, really big moves in early 2021. I, you know, I told everybody about them and we, we bet millions on some asset classes and, and when everybody was telling us not to, and it worked out really, really well. And about 10 months ago, uh, when we got on one of my podcasts, I said the Fed was going to continue to raise rates for another nine or 10 months um, before we were going to see you know, any slowdown. People didn't believe me when I said that. And then the second part of my prediction was that we were going to see an extra nine months after that of kind of deteriorating market until we saw kind of the most damage from all those raises before um, we really saw some impacts. But anyway, I study real estate. I study economic trends, um, inflationary stuff, things like that. But uh, yeah, happy to talk about whatever we get into today. Sweet. Yeah. <clears throat> and a key point that I want to hit about that, that a lot of people, um, especially those that are new to the community, aren't really comfortable with yet is calling your shot publicly. Um, so a lot of people say that, you know, I do the same thing where it's just like, I'm like, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm trying to build. Here's what my prediction is. Here's my here's my vision. And you post it publicly. And then it's cool to document the journey along the way. And then afterwards, you have something to point back to and say, hey, look, like I called my shot here. And a lot of you guys are doing really cool stuff, but you're not calling your shot. So it's like when you call your shot, you're able to go back and say, look, here's my point A, and then here's my point B. And so that's exactly what Aaron did. So he called his shots. And now, you know, you've done it through a couple of different market cycles. So let's go into it right now, man. Uh, do you have any uh, slides or presentations from Rockstars that you wanted to share? Do you want to just dive in? The, we can di we can dive into a few things and, and kind of jump across a few slides, you know. And and the benefit for you guys of calling your shop, right, on whatever you're doing later is most of my business life, not most of it, the beginning of my business life, I had to convince people to believe in me. I had to convince people to invest in me. I had to convince people to join my team. I had to convince people that, that I knew what I was doing. And, I, and at the beginning, I didn't have a track record to convince them. And so, so much of the convincing them at the beginning was saying like, hey, like my first profit split sort of stuff was like, hey, we'll do this deal for, I'll do it for free. Like, like at the beginning, I had, no, I had no track record. But then later, when you call your shots and you say what you're doing uh, along the way, then it makes it a little bit easier. So first, um, we'll jump, let's jump into the housing market now. And kind of what we're seeing, and the real estate market is a few different things, right? So there's housing, that's a main part of of the real estate market that most people think about, that most early investors think about, and so that's like houses or you know houses and condos is what people think about as the primary. There's the most of those; it's the easiest to get into, and you know as we'll get into some stats for across the country, that's an asset class all by itself, and which is probably the most common people talk about. And the and there's some some things that are going okay with housing and some things that are that are struggling with housing that are going to have these extra economic impacts. And then there's multifamily, which is an asset class all by itself. And the and a lot of the advantages of multifamily that there were you know several years ago makes it really really tough right now. So multifamily was impacted way more negatively with the Fed raising their rates than single family has. So, you know, we've got a lot of $10 million complexes that were worth $10 million two years ago that are worth $7 million now and getting foreclosed on. We have people reaching out to us to bail out to see if we can bail them out. I'll explain how that happened because they didn't actually, they've actually like raised rents. They're actually more profitable than they were two years ago. So why did they go from 10 million in value to 7 million in value? Why are people getting foreclosed on? And the same with that commercial and retail space. So jump into like single family first. Uh, and let's see, I'll share my screen. One of my favorite places to go look for stats is Redfin Data Center. And so everybody has access 
to Redfin Data Center and you can pick your metro. And when you first get to like see, uh, like go through the list here, it talks about, uh, this is just like new listings. So the orange is 2021, the black is 2022, and the blue is 2023. And so if you're looking at a nationwide, right, there was about the same number of sales year over year. And the funny thing about real estate is it's seasonal. So this is like a calendar, right? So this is February, this is April. And so even though like there were a lot, you know, not very many people buy houses in like November and December, but a lot of people buy in, you know, March, April, May, June, July. So we're almost leaving the busy season. The busy season of the year is almost over. And for the rest of the year, we'll start to see declines in sales because of that seasonal value. And so what we're seeing right now is there's less listings on the market. So even though in 2021 and 2022, we had about the same, there's a lot less stuff on the market right now. It's down 23% year over year. Another thing that we like to look at is we like to look at the months of supply. So that's another thing where you talk about, you know, is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? And what they talk about is if you're up at like four or five months of supply, that's when it becomes a, a buyer's market instead of a seller's market, which is kind of funny because most of the places nationwide right now, we're at 10 weeks of supply, which is just two and a half months, which really means that it is still a seller's market. But we're in a really, really weird market right now with it being a seller's market because there's low inventory, but buyers can't afford what they used to be able to afford. Um, and then the last thing I want to get to is median sales price. I, I might not do it on my now. There it is. So median sales price when we're looking at year over year. So 2021, you know, we had a lot of you know, the prices and housing were going up. 2022, they were up year over year. And then 2023, we're now you know, nationwide, we're kind of down, but not by much. So if you look at this chart, this chart looks pretty darn good. And you say, okay, we're not getting the 20% year over year. But if you look at this for a second, you say like, so May 2021, median sales price was 340000 May 2022, it was 387000 So in general, like houses across the country up 15% year over year. When we start to jump into like individual metros, that's when you get to see your different story. And so if you guys are doing real estate anywhere, I would encourage you to go to Redfin Data Center and plug in your city and start to see kind of what happens. So Austin is a very different story. So remember, orange is the price for 2021. Black is 2022. It kept going up. So in May of 2022, the median sales price was as high as 574,000 up from 464. So it was up 39% year over year, right? Huge increases, right? It was really, really crazy to see that. But now blue is 2023. So now the price, median price came down to about 450 at the beginning of the year, and it's kind of still at that. So this is saying that in, in Austin, right now, prices are below what they were in May of 2021, which is pretty crazy. So most markets, you know, since then have gained a lot of value. Like 2021 was some of the best gains people have ever seen. And so in some places like Austin, we're already back down. We've lost two years of value. That's created a lot of changes uh, for people. And then when you get this, the, when you go to like the number of homes sold to, we also have like, the, you know, the volumes down, volumes down, you know, 8% year over year. That's not, that's not the end of the world volume wise. So part of the year we were down like 30, 40%. So this is actually improving. I'm just going to grab kind of one other metro to be able to compare. And then we'll talk about like what all of it means. So Aaron, they, when, it, when it comes to these, um, are we seeing the same thing in the upper end market, like the higher class market? 
like like with y'all's neighborhoods and stuff because i know that there was like a lot of lake austin properties so i know in the median we're looking at a huge downturn but are we seeing the same in like luxury sales yeah so the, we are seeing and this is the same in luxury sales too like the um so there's still buyers out there but it's almost more damaging in in the luxury market right now because the people that are buying right now are still people that have to buy Right. People say it doesn't matter if rates are 7% or not. Like people need housing. Well, someone that's buying a $9 million house, a $10 million house, they don't need to buy. They, there's nothing that makes them need to buy right now. They buy when they want to, they buy when they find the perfect property. And they honestly don't care if they spend 6 million or 10 million. Right. They're looking for a specific property. And when they find the property they want, so the biggest difference when you get into those really, really high markets, and so in Austin, it's like the six to 10 million market and some other areas, you know, some less expensive places that could be the one or $2 million market. But when you get to the top of the market in every town, those are the people that don't need to move. They don't have a reason. It's not because reasons to move is like someone loses a job or someone gets relocated for a job. Kids are graduating and moving out. You know, people are having more kids and so they're needing to upsize and things like that. So we're seeing a bigger slow. So even though like median, we're seeing those corrections, it's even worse in the top of the market. The stuff that is selling right now is like first time home buyer stuff. One of the most unique things about this market that's putting us in this kind of, um, it's like a stalemate. And then, uh, so it reminds me a lot of like the, the time back in like 2008 when foreclosures were just starting. So where we're looking at, like, let's say the median price in Austin right now is $550,000, median sales price. So median list price is, is $700,000, which means most of the sellers still want to sell for $700,000, but the buyers can't afford it anymore. The buyer, especially like the first-time home buyer. So the first-time home buyer, I sold a house last week, and he, he the offer was for $240,000 was his pre-approval, and it was for 7.5% was his interest rate. So 18 months ago, he could have bought a house for $650,000 with the same payment. A first-time home buyer will give you all of their money. They will buy the biggest house they're allowed to buy. They will use the biggest payment that the lender lets, tells them they can. They will give you all their money. They're asking the lender, how much money am I allowed to give this guy? The lender says $250. 18 months ago, he would have said $650. That's a big swing. If you're looking at like any, any town you're in, compare the $650,000 houses to the $250,000 houses. So now what we're seeing is like, you know, the buyer still would love that house. He would still give you all his money, but he can only afford a little bit less. And so let's say he's you know, so in that market where he's able to like buy a house for 250, there's most of the listings are at 350. Sellers still really, really want 350. The buyers really can only afford 250. They would give them whatever. So that's that stalemate we're in. So we have this low inventory that's keeping prices, you know, pretty good. Uh, in general, but the buyers that want to buy can't afford. And then most of the sellers, they say, if I have to sell it for that much, I'm just not going to sell. I don't want to have to get rid of my 3% rate anyway. So most of the people like, so a strategy that I'm telling people that want to like be doing flips right now, want to be buying right now is buy in the, in the foreclosures, the direct to seller, the distressed stuff at the entry level market. Because I could buy a house at auction for 175 and I can list it for 250 that that guy could afford. Because I didn't buy it two years ago, or I don't have a 3% rate on it. And so there are buyers that want to buy. There's just, they, they can just afford less than they used to, which means there's less buyers at every price point. So it's a, it's a really weird stalemate that we're seeing. Uh, there's still some cities across the country where, where median price is up year over year. 
but volume is down everywhere and affordability is down everywhere. Hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about where we see multifamily going with the cap rates scenarios and all of that right now? Because before like multifamily wasn't, you know, the sexy thing, but then as, as time progressed and as we went through that last bull run through 2008 and onward, then that's when it started to become more sexy as we went through that kind of renters market um, to where that's where we're becoming increasingly more so. So what do you see right now in, in multifamily, um, especially in the near short to midterm future? Yeah. And I have, um, I've got a large apartment complex, class A apartment complex that I own uh, that I really, really like. Uh, when I first, when I, when I bought it at the beginning of 2021, you know, a year later, it was supposed, it was worth on paper, a few million dollars more. Now it's probably worth, you know, same or less than what I bought it for uh, because of what those, those changes were. Um, so, and, and really quick, is everybody in the group, is there some knowledge of real estate? Is there lots of knowledge of real estate? Everybody from different places in the U.S.? Yeah. So everyone's everyone's all around. I would say the average group member here probably on this call is between three to 30 doors. So most of them have some real estate they've already bought um, and they're looking to go into like the larger deals, whether that be self-storage, multifamily. Um, some of them are underwriting Airbnb, short-term rentals. We can get into that market here shortly. And then Neil over here, uh, both Neil Crash and Cowan are doing sober living houses. So they're doing single family as well. So that's kind of the picture on the call. Well, you guys are at like this ideal spot and ideal time because you're at that like three to 30 doors and there is a lot more opportunity today than there was a year ago. And the people that went really, really big two years ago are the ones that are in a lot of trouble right now. Um, so the reason I asked what the, what the experience was on real estate is so multifamily and commercial and storage is 100% valued on cap rates. And so like, what does that mean? It's not based on what something else sold for a year ago or six months ago. It's based on how much money does that property make? And so very quick analysis is if a property makes $50,000 a year, if, if an agent said, hey, you know, if, this, if I value this at a five cap, it would be worth a million dollars. So what does that mean? It means if you spent, if you paid a million dollars for it, doesn't matter like loans or anything else, whatever the sales price was, if the sales price was a million dollars, and, and you take, you know, if it's a five cap, you take 5% of that, that's $50,000 a year. So they're saying, okay, it makes $50,000 a year at a five cap, it's worth a million dollars. And two years ago, stuff was valued at a five cap. And two years ago, a lot of people were buying multifamily projects and they were saying, I'm going to buy this property for a million dollars and I'm going to put another million dollars into it and I'm going to raise rents and then I'm going to refinance it and it's going to be worth, you know, a gazillion dollars. And there was a lot of people investing in these syndications and people trying to, to get into those. So here's the, the problem that happened with cap rates. I was actually doing an analysis earlier uh, for a video on my board back here, but the uh, you probably can't see it. So, all right, so you take, five, you take a five cap, right? So a million dollars, five cap, $50,000 a year. Now you take the same exact apartment complex. Nothing has changed. Let's say nothing has changed at all. It's still making $50,000 a month. It still looks great. Maybe you put $100,000 in upgrades into it, but it still makes $50,000 a month. Well, now apartments are seven cap, period. That's if you're lucky. So if you went to go sell an apartment today or you went to go refinance an apartment today, it's a seven cap. So what does that mean? It means what? how much would it be worth to have $50,000 equal 7% a year? And what that new value is, is it's a $700,000 complex. So nothing changed in the last two years on the actual asset. 
assets great, still making the same amount of money. Instead of being worth a million dollars, it's worth 700,000. And that's not theoretical. That's like all the stuff that was bought two years ago. Um, because those were the values most of the time across the board. So what does that mean? What So where is the opportunity? What's happening? We're getting a lot of people calling out to us because they didn't just buy a million dollar apartment. They bought a $10 million apartment. And they they put $2 million down on it. They got an 80% you know, loan that was a 24-month bridge loan, which is very common if you're going to do a value add. You guys, you guys have probably started to learn about you know, borrowing money from a buddy to buy houses, like bridge loans, all the sorts of different financing and stuff that's out there. You buy a $10 million apartment, you do a $2 million down payment that they raised from friends, families, people in these masterminds were a part of, and they got an $8 million loan. Two years later, the loan says, okay, you've had this loan for 24 months. It's a bridge. It is now due. You owe us $8 million. The, per- the people thought, I'm just going to refi this. That's fine. They go get an appraisal done and now it appraises for $7 million. They bought it for $10 million two years ago. It's still a great, great asset, but now it's only worth seven. So they, they reach out to us and they say, hey, can we? Can you, can you buy this? Can you sell it? We said it's not even worth the debt. So that's the stuff that we're seeing get foreclosed on. We're seeing really, really large assets getting foreclosed on. We had like a $40 million complex uh, foreclosed uh, last month. We had $100 million worth of apartments a couple months ago up in the Dallas area. And I was looking at one uh, just a couple of days ago that's close to Austin, that there's a $17 million loan on it that was that. It was a value add. And the guy will sell it to me for the note and it's only worth 10 million bucks today. So I think if you guys want to be getting into multifamily, the perfect time is right now because it is going to be highly discounted. But just- you just see everyone's body language, just like everyone's like this and they're like, <laughs> like be so glad but you, there's all the jokes right of people going like i should have bought more houses in 2009 like i was there in 2009 buying houses i should have kept more there's all the jokes and you go like so what happened so like the cool the best news is you guys don't have 100 doors you don't have 50 doors you've got like three to 30 so you're in the spot where you guys could actually like do something with this now be careful don't get fooled into like paying those other prices worst mistakes i ever made was buying like c and d level apartment complexes because they looked like they were going to be really good on paper. I mean, don't do that unless they're really close by and you're ready to put a bunch of effort into it. But there's a lot of good, a lot of good opportunities to buy. If, if you can make it cash flow at today's rate, 7.5% rate, even barely, rates will, in the next five to seven years, get back down to like a 5% rate. Uh, cap rates won't go back to 4 to 5% like ever, um, but they should get back to 6% when you go to do that refi. Can we talk a little bit about, and we'll we'll just sit here for another couple of minutes, and then I want to get into the the short-term rental ban that Dallas just did. So we can just go ahead and keep eating our vegetables while we're having this conversation before we get into like the strategy and what to do next. So right now, there was this weird thing that happened in multifamily where, you know, because of the cap rates, people used to be buying these C-class properties and then putting a lot of, you know, lipstick and energy into renovating them to increase the NOI. But now we're seeing that you can make the same money as like a C C grade property as like an A class property. So then everyone started buying the new builds and the new construction. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened or why that happened? Because that was something that I always heard, but it kind of confused me. Yeah, I mean, so my first one was a C and D level spot, and a lot of the reasons that people buy a C or D level apartment is because usually they're not performing but they look really, really good on paper where you say, if this thing is fully occupied, my return is going to be amazing. 
Um, so I bought a 65 unit apartment complex for $350,000 back in like 2011, right? That was a screaming deal. But part of why it did is, is when I was touring it, there was like holes in the roof, like dead possums in the room. Like it was, but when I did like the cash flow on it, I was like, man, when I get this thing fully rented, they're renting for 500 bucks a door, man, I'm going to be making so much money on this thing. So it took a while. It took several years to go from zero occupancy to full occupancy to get it refinanced. I was able to do a giant cash out refinance at the time for a few hundred thousand dollars. And then there were times when I was making like 10 to $15,000 a month, which was great. And I remember telling the lender, he goes, he gave me a seven-year loan on it. He goes, you're not going to own this thing in seven years. And I was like, yeah, I am. I'm going to own this forever. Like, why would I give up this cash flow? Like now it's performing. Now it's making $15,000 a month. And he goes, Aaron, you might, but these sort of properties have a life cycle. Like the reason we're giving you a five to seven is because like, it's not going to really work out. So what, what did he mean by that? So like in these class C, class D properties, because then you're like, oh, this is performing at like a 10 cap. Like, man, this is amazing. I'm making so much money. The ROI, it's like the first time you see a house that's $20,000 that you could probably rent for 400. And you go, wow, that's going to be an amazing investment because they're out there. The problem with a $500 apartment is when a tenant trashes it, it costs $3,000 to fix the unit. And if I have a class A apartment that rents for $10,000 a unit, $5,000 a unit, whatever, it also costs $3,000 a unit. So the apartment, when you get it, it sucks. There's nobody occupied in it. You put all this money, all this effort, you rebuild the whole thing. Now all the tenants want to go there. Everybody wants to go there because you're a five or $600 unit and you're the only one that's new construction. So everybody comes in and then you have this period of time where you're fully occupied. Everybody's great. Cash flow is great, but you still have the same class of tenant in the same class of neighborhood. So then what starts to happen is the same thing that happened before. Well, then some people stop taking care of it. You know, the meth labs came back in, you know, into the complex. We had meth labs in our complex, right? We had, you know, cops doing busts in there. We had a tenant shoot and kill another tenant on camera. And so you start to go this like from, we were, we were like 10 out of 65 rented to all 65 are rented. And we're thinking, we know what we're doing to also down to 50 or to 55, or like an HVAC system goes out. Again, that's a $4,500 expense. When your rent is $500 a month, that's six months in rent, seven months in rent from that tenant when you thought that you weren't going to have it anymore. So the why, why people like class C and class D properties is when you're first getting into the business, you're going to want to get into that because it's something you can afford and the return looks really good and you have that effort. You can do that as like flips or short-term stuff. I just wouldn't recommend people doing that with the idea that I remember when I got that one, I'm like, I'm going to own this one forever because of the cash flow. I ended up selling it when we were at like, you know, 50 out of 65 occupied, still for more than I bought it for, but not as much as I could have if I'd have sold it at the top. So it, so then people learn about, all right, so in class A and class B, you kind of realize like the class A advertised is, you know, performing as a five or six cap. The class C was performing as like a nine cap. So of course I'm going to buy for a better return. And then you learn that it's not really that much of a, a that great of a return if, because when you have an AC go out that. So now you're going back to like, all right, I would like less, I would actually like have a pure five to 6% return sort of instead. And, and, and as that's happening with the cap rates too, it just starts, it just starts pricing everything out because one thing it's, it's hurting, I guess is it's harder to go buy a class C, class D property. It was really easy for new so for people that have only done 10 deals to go buy an apartment two years ago. 
because anybody would give you a hard money loan for it, an expensive loan for it. They would value uh, and it would appraise really, really good because appraisers were just jacking the, the, the rates up on them. If you go to try one today, you're going to have a much tougher time getting a loan on like a class C, class D, even though the cash flow should be good. Um, you know, so yeah. Sweet. So if you guys are wanting to hike a volcano with this guy, uh, come come with us to Costa Rica. <laughs> nice little plug there. Let's talk one. Uh, let's finish the doom and gloom here, and let's hit on the um, Dallas short term rental ban. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and the the funny thing is, like again, for your crowd, the doom and gloom is like the best news ever. It's, it's doom- the areas of opportunity because you guys get to learn from mistakes from others. You get to learn, and you get to learn the, about the mistakes in a part of a fresh new market cycle. So everything's crashing and burning, and like you guys get to be the phoenix rising from the ashes. Yeah, and we get rich and happy, and I don't know. We all go buy houses next to Aaron or something. Well, I'll be in the neighborhood. I, I recognize some names on here that have that have been out to the neighborhood and and and, and seen us or come visit. Um, so short term rental market. This is uh, so it was big news when we posted it this week. It's probably my most shared thing that I did on Instagram in the, in the past two months. And just sharing the news that city council in Dallas said no more Airbnbs. So in an in, and there's a thousand of them operating right there. And so in an instant, a thousand properties probably had their net rental income get cut, you know, by 65% because an Airbnb should get three times the, the regular rent, right? If you're not, then it's not a really good business plan. And so if let's say Zillow says it's going to rent for $2,000 a month, your Airbnb business plan should be that it's going to rent for 6,000, you know, when you're on. So, so that's why you would do short-term instead of single family, because short-term is more work through the hospitality industry. I've had lots of them. I have a couple right now. So Dallas decided they made it illegal. So in an instant, you know, you know, three quarters, three quarters of the rent is gone on it. And now the resale value is probably down, you know, on those by may, maybe 10 to 15%. Because the reality is there's a lot of short-term rentals that were really kind of set up to be short-term rentals. Um, and there were even some short-term rental loans that people got to start doing. So I just think it's a good reminder of um, like one of the questions that came up said, will, will that get grandfathered in? No, everybody that has one is out. They did the same thing in Nashville for the longest time. Uh, and a lot of people kept like kept them going in Nashville. They just paid the daily fines. Like that was an option. Like some people just stayed in business um, doing it. There was... There's a lot of things that push them to it. Usually it's the hotels that encourage the city council to vote them out. So the hotel, the only like who the only people that don't like Airbnbs are the people that live next door to a big Airbnb that's a party house or the hotel community. Like all of us love I can tell you who else hates them is every one of my freaking Instagram comments. Yeah. Hate every single one of them. Now apparently we are landlord scum and we are we are terrible people. Well, it's funny, we all love staying in them, but nobody wants an Airbnb next door to us period like none of us do like none of us want to have the apartment next to us be an airbnb none of us want the house next to us to be an airbnb like we're all these creatures of habit where we just don't like to be annoyed. i stayed at a hotel in miami and i was so annoyed that like the the dj was going at like two in the morning even though he's like two blocks away like we're easily annoyed by stuff so like nobody wants them but we all love staying in them and so like i think we'll see like this other balance so there could be some other ways that they um you know, like with Airbnb, how, how people will be able to deal with it. Like Dallas could start letting them back in, but charge them a lot bigger fees. My first Airbnb was in a town in California that was across the street was Granite Bay. Two doors down was Rockland, but I was in the town of Loomis. 
town of Loomis had no Airbnb restrictions at all. The people across the street couldn't have them. Right. So I was able to have an Airbnb at, at my house. It was this giant estate. People across the street couldn't have it. So they complained about me all the time, but I was in the town of Loomis, like nothing could happen. And the, and there, and the people from Granite Bay complaining didn't matter. You get all those different options out there. So it just be careful with your investments, always have a backup plan and always think, what if this doesn't work? When those guys were investing in those apartments and they went really, really heavy leverage. Now it would have been really hard for them to imagine that the housing values would have come, you know, that the value of their apartment could come down 30% in a two-year period because of cap rates. There's some stuff you can't forecast, but you could get at stuff and say, let's just not be so aggressive. So if the lender says they'll give you 80% loan on it, doesn't mean you should take an 80% loan. Like what's more conservative? A 60% loan, a 70% loan, a 50% loan. It's tough. If your goal is to like get as many doors as possible, then you're going to go like 80, 90% loans the best you can. But like one of the ways that you can grow steadily is grow slower and grow more conservative and be ready to make like there are times when I went really, really huge, but I like knew exactly what I was doing. I knew this was the moment. And this was the moment to bet everything. So like you guys will have a few of those moments in your lifetime. Not right now is not one of those moments. So like be conservative, be conservative with your with your short term rental stuff, be conservative with your other rental stuff. And but just keep your eye out because there will be some times you're like, okay, this is the time to go all in. I should get 100% financing on everything and push. Like I've, I've, I've had some big bets like that, that that paid off. Yeah. And I could do, we could talk about this for the next hour, but I really want to dive into that because that's a really cool transition point for us. Guys, what Aaron's talking about is the same concepts we teach here, which is navigation versus acceleration. So think if Aaron had this opportunity come up on his plate and he was moving in 30, 50 different directions. He was like, I'm going to buy some laundromats. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. When the opportunity came and it was time for him to go a thousand miles an hour, he was able to mash the gas and go and focus on his one thing and start his sprint, which is especially in this last like 2021 market was able to, he was able to really capitalize on that. So it's the same thing with you guys. What we're doing today is we're setting the navigation, we're setting the groundwork, we're figuring out what is the thing that you guys want to sprint towards? What's that one strategy, one thing that you want to implement so that you can go all in on that. And then that's when we, we strike when the opportunity comes up. So Aaron, can you talk about how that, how you applied that in your first couple of runs and how you uh, applied that tactically with the foreclosure market? Yeah. You know, and the and there there could also be times when you do have your hand in a lot of pots. And then there comes a moment when you're like, okay, I only get to focus on this one right now. And your other pots, your other babies, your other businesses like feel abused and you're not, you don't have time for those anymore. And some of those. So when I went all in on on one of them in 2021, my other ones really went to the wayside, profit margins went down. The the, comp- the employees in those companies were frustrated, but I like knew when I had a, a moment that I had to do that. Um, in 2009, I, so 2007, I was a home builder in like central California, Santa Barbara. I didn't know there was a housing market crashing. I was golfing like three days a week. And as soon as we would build houses, they would sell and they'd sell for over asking. It was this, I just graduated from college. It was this really unfair expectation on what opportunity was going to be like in life. Then the housing market crashed. And then we went from like, we laid off 75 out of 70 out of the 75 people at the company. Um, they kept me, I wish they would have laid me off some of the time. And we went back to like doing like, I, instead of golfing now we're back to doing manual labor and I'm cleaning up houses and we're doing bank workouts with these lenders. So essentially the people I could work for would short sale. Then I discovered courthouse step foreclosures. Cause we kept trying to find these different businesses. I, I, I tried, I had like six or seven companies. I tried to start during that time. I found courthouse step 
foreclosures. At the time, I was the third person bidding in Sacramento, and I was the only person that actually had like business knowledge. So I'd just come out of helping run, being the operations manager of this big home builder. So I could say, hey, this is a very archaic business here. I've got this business knowledge. I'm going to apply it. So I got to apply it uh, pretty quickly. I raised money with with uh, some investors. I had to convince them, to, you know, to bet on me. It was a really kind of wild time and wild moments. But I'm doing some of the cliff notes so we can get to like knowing when some of those moments are. Um, went really big from 2009 to 2012. Flipped a thousand houses, made millions of dollars. Learned a whole bunch of stuff. I was like young. I was excited. I built out construction teams and sales team. I just copied the home building model. Um, and it was um, it was this really really exciting time. Uh, and then in 2012, Blackstone started entering the market. They offered to kind of buy my company, told me to come work for them. When I'm having these talks with them, I was still like cocky and didn't know what I didn't know. And they told me that if I didn't go work with them, they were going to put me out of business. And I and I, I remember just being this cocky little 20-year-old kid with no mentors, 25-year-old kid, and just saying like, you're not going to put me out of business. Like just my commissions alone last month were 70 grand. Like not like a profit was like two or 300,000. It was I, I was, didn't know what I didn't know, couldn't be touched. They came and put me out of business. So boom. So that was like second time I went, I went broke, but, so, but I got to learn some different things. And I remember thinking, oh man, I just flipped a thousand houses. I had a bunch of money, but I went broke. Cause I'd never, I didn't lay people off. And I kept like going to auction, trying to compete with them. I, I wanted to beat Blackstone. I kept thinking like, it's like bopping my head against the wall. And I remembered thinking like, oh, if I'd have just had a hundred more, if I'd have just kept a hundred of those thousand flips as rentals, I'd have been set for life. I'd never be worrying about this. So then I went out to uh, Texas in 2015 and I started buying rentals. At that time, I saw that that was my big uh, opportunity, right? So I, I flew out to, to Texas every month in 2015. I'd buy like 10 houses at auction. This time I was smarter. I would only flip like one of them for money so I could like feed my feed my kids and and like and afford the rentals, and I kept the rest as rentals. I said prices will never go up in Texas. I just want nice and stable. So I bought ten houses a month from 2015 to forever. Right, 2020 hit that added up to a lot of houses that I had as rentals. Um, and then the market went crazy. So in 2015, I didn't really know how big my my moment was, but when it started to work, I wished I had more money, and I was trying to raise money again. When 2009 first hit, and I was new in that market. I was raising money and we did good, but it could have gone, been even bigger had I been able to raise more money. Uh, January 2021 uh, was this interesting time in the market because at the end of 2020, housing prices had just gone up the most they had ever they had gone up ever in Texas, really, within a nine-month period. And in most places in the country, the biggest they'd gone up since like 2003, 2005. So in January 2021, a lot of people were saying the market is slowing down. December was slow. We're going to see a housing market crash now, or we're going to see a correction because that bubble went up too big. Um, but based on like the election and what we saw going with uh, inflation numbers and some of our other studies, we said prices are going to go through the roof. And I remember uh, texting a real estate agent and I had to learn from like what I learned from Blackstone back then. So everybody else had stopped. And I said, and I told him, I said, we need to buy $35 million worth of houses in the next 60 days. Like the, I need you to send me every listing on the market built 1985 and newer. We're going to write an offer on everything on MLS, 1985 and newer uh, at that time. Really pretty much for list prices because because we were like, we got room. Plus we did auction. Plus we went and started buying these neighborhoods of new construction stuff. Uh, the unique thing about that new construction bet, and then and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop as we, as we jump in somewhere else. The new construction bet was January, 2021. 
And we'd go into these neighborhoods where there would be, you know, Kevin knows one of the neighborhoods right behind the Bucky's up in Temple. There's seven different builders. They all have like seven duplexes that they're building. They all have the same lender. Lenders were scared and they wouldn't let them finish building unless they got the offers first. So they brought them to market to us in January 2021 and said, do you want to buy these? So we got them all in contract to buy them for $260 to $270 per duplex, January 2021. We sent them all the same proof of funds. Later, their lender called me and said, hey, you can't use the same proof of funds for all your builders. And I'm like, it's not my problem. You can't tell them. So it's fine. Um, the uh, So January 21, we tie up these whole neighborhoods, all new construction. October 2021, the, the neighborhoods are now built out. And now they're appraising for between $400,000 and $440,000 on closing day. So we're able to get cash out refinances done as we were doing it. So January 2021 was this moment where I saw where the market was going more than anybody else. I knew that I had the ability to do it. And I had an unlimited amount of people wanting to invest in me at the time. So like my first 2009 opportunity, I saw it, but I didn't have a track record yet. So I had to get a track record. In 2015, it was pretty similar. It was, I saw the market. I saw the opportunity. We were still able to buy a lot of houses. And 2021 was that first time where I was like, let's drop everything. So for the next six months, man, there were days before closing. I'm calling up buddies and saying, hey, like, wire me 400,000. I'll wire you back 410,000 tomorrow. I'm like, you know, we're scrambling to close stuff. We're like finding out because the builders didn't want us to actually close it. So they would only tell us it was ready like the day before closing. They go, we're done. If you don't, they'd send us a 24 hour demand. If you don't close tomorrow, we're not selling it to you. But that was their hope. They didn't want us to actually close because of our contract prices. So the rest of my businesses kind of fell by the wayside, but I was able to like really, really go big when I saw the moment. So there were times. So throughout, like there were also plenty of times I'm grateful I have my other businesses. I'm grateful I have the rentals. Um, yeah, when COVID hit, my foreclosure business went out of business for a while because they, there was the moratorium. So it's good to be diversified and like be slow and consistent and careful. But then when you, but wait for that moment, there'll be two or three moments in your lifetime. Like it won't like two or three moments in your lifetime where it's like, this is the moment for me to go super, super big. Um, but I would say like 80% of my wealth was built in like two different, you know, five or six month periods. Woo. How are y'all feeling? <laughs> I don't know if anyone can apply anything with that. Like it's a, it's a no, fun story no, no. to share. That's, and sometimes people is, have a tough time relating to it, but is, you will get your moment. Yeah, this is my this is my job, man. I'm I'm the translator. All right, so let's let's bring it down, uh, dude. Okay, cool. So, what's some advice that you can give for identifying these moments? What are some telltale signs that we could be on the lookout for? Maybe some macro signs where we can start putting the putting the pieces together to say, this is my thing. This is what I need to focus on. This is going to change my life because right now that's how I feel about this. For me, which is why, you know, I talk to you and I talk to Mike and I'm selling my real estate to focus all in on this. Like this is my sprint here. And I'm all in on this because I know when I pick my head up uh, two, three, five years later with Action Academy, like this is going to be something that changes all of our lives. So what's some advice you can give on identifying your moment? What to look for? So the um, man, whenever. So you want to soak up like news and information like a sponge. Which, the, which, so like, what does that mean? Like whenever you're walking from place to place, you should have headphones on listening to like podcasts and news reports and like YouTube stuff. Hey, podcasts. Like the, whenever you're going anywhere, right? Like the, if you've got a 10 minute something, like compare how much TV you watch to compare how much info that you take in, because the real, real telltale signs 
Like that's, I know we're within about five or six months of like some of our next big moments in SFR. But in the meantime, we're selling anything that we don't have long-term money on because we believe it's still correcting, at least in our markets where we are. But like the, what we're starting to get in, uh, we're realizing that, you know, inflation actually isn't going to get beat up the way that we think it is. So we're going to get a lot of economic factors that are going to bring wages down over the next six months. Like people are going to be hurting. Businesses are going to be hurting. Some values are going to be coming down. AI is going to help business owners like become more profitable again. So we're going to see is like more economic damage over the next six months. And then we're going to see this like really crazy, you know, the inflation is going to get worse and housing is the best offset for inflation. So the, if you buy a house now, it'll be worth more, you know, five, six years from now, if you buy a house in three to six months, then you'll probably be making money within two to three years asset wise. But those are like some strategies that I get just from listening to kind of news all the time. And then, man, I love real estate charts. If real estate is the thing for your neighborhood or specifically your zip code or specifically like your property type, and you should be trying to ask yourself like what could go wrong or what could go right and what are like the big trends. You always want to be at the beginning of a big trend. Like all the people that are investing in AI technology right now, like that's the only stock and the only startup that's actually going to be performing well because investors know that you've got to be at the beginning of something that's going to be like a life-changing type event. So as you start to like come across these different ideas, you're going to see one that goes, no, this is a really good idea. And as we start to poke holes in it, like, you know, you know, th- these are the things against it. Most Airbnb investors, again, I love Airbnbs, but we all knew there was a chance that a city could shut us down, um, that it wasn't really protected by anything, that an HOA could change a law at any time, a city could change a law at any time, things like that. So I think it's just being a sponge, trying to learn as much stuff as you can and getting a lot of practice, like getting in the reps. If you want to make offers, like go make offers on stuff. Like like you should buy a rental right now if you can get a 7.5% loan and make money on it, right? Even though I think prices are coming down a little bit, if you can buy it today and it works at today's path, like at today's rate, buy it. There aren't going to be very many on the market that can so you could be getting your reps in, making the offers, like looking at what's out there. And maybe every time you're offering, you know, under asking or whatever, because that's your metric. But the more houses you comp, the more analysis you do, the quicker you'll get at it. And then you'll start to actually see the trends. You'll say, wait a second, I've been writing offers in this neighborhood for three months. And now these ones are actually selling faster. Or the rents look like they've come up a little bit. Or there's less houses on the market for rent right now. So as you're taking it all in, you'll start to see. And so now you go, oh. There's way less houses on the market in this neighborhood than there used to be. The demand is higher that people actually can't quantify yet. I'm going to go big at that neighborhood. Dude, I love that. So you said um, about like poking holes and stress testing your ideas or stress testing whatever this idea or business is. What are some holes that we can use? Uh, like what are, some, what are some frameworks that we can apply to poke holes and stress test our idea? Whenever we have one and we're like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. How do we stress test? Well, it's mostly when, so it's every idea that comes out, somebody will say, well, she said, I'm going to buy a house and do this. Family member is going to say, well, isn't the housing market about to crash? And then you're going to repeat a line that you heard in the news or on a podcast or somewhere. And you're going to go, no, the housing market is not going to crash. We have a supply shortage, right? Whatever, you know, whatever is the bite that you're hearing. Anytime you're going to reply with a bite for this is why it won't happen. You want to start asking yourself, but what if that part isn't true? Or what if that part doesn't matter? Or can two things be true at the same time? Could we have a housing supply shortage, but an affordability gap that's so huge that even though, you know, like we can't, we're never going to build enough house, or maybe we don't have a housing supply shortage anymore because, 
you know, half as many people can afford a $400,000 house as could before. Like maybe we only had a housing supply shortage when interest rates were 3%. We're about to get tested to see if we have one at seven. So there's a lot of things that we tell ourselves when we're doing analysis of why this is a good business plan. And so the biggest way to stress test is just start to test those numbers. Even with Airbnb investments, as you start to plug it in, you go, so if I'm rented out six days a month, this is my cash flow. So all I have to do is be rented out six days a month and then I break even, or I have to rent out 12 days a month and then I break even. But then you start asking yourself, well, what if, what if it's at six? What if it's at eight? How long will I be able to do it if it's at six or eight? Like, what if it's half as good? I had Airbnbs when COVID hit and we weren't allowed to have Airbnbs for what? Right. And all the things got canceled and we were like, what's going to happen? Like, no, we couldn't have predicted that losing three months of income right away. Um, and then the, the market, the, 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 t- the tough thing is the reason black swans are what they are is they're, they're impossible to predict. So yeah. I was at an event a year before COVID hit and somebody asked me like, what's the biggest thing that could happen in your business? Cause I wasn't able to picture that Blackstone was going to put me out of business even though I should have seen it. Right. And they said, well, what's your biggest thing? Well, at the time I owned 300 houses in Fort hood. And I thought, well, maybe the military like transfers the army base and there's no longer an army base in that town. Like that could be a catastrophic event that impacts my real estate. So I was trying to go that deep. And so that got me to start investing in other places uh, as we started to spread out and go, cool, maybe we're central there and maybe we need to spread it out to other businesses. But I think the biggest way to stress test is go like, what could really, really go wrong in this? And if it does, will I be okay? Yeah, got it. Cool. Well, let's open up for some Q&A. Um, Neil, I actually want to start with you because I like your strategy. I haven't heard of it before. So share share what you're doing with Aaron and uh, ask any questions you have, buddy. Uh, are you talking to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't realize there are two Neils on. I didn't realize Callum was on. Yeah, I, I raised my hand earlier, but um, I think you kind of covered that. But, but I was curious what the 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 well, Rachel asked it too. What the driving? What is driving the change in the cap rate for that multifamily? I was wondering why did that drastically change from you know five percent up to seven and a half percent? That's that's what my question was there. Yeah. So the so all of my lines of credit as an investor are tied to the Fed rate directly. Now, not all mortgages are. The, the Fed there's a lot of things that tie into a, a mortgage rate. So like with how high the Fed rates have gone, right? Mortgages have gone from let's say 3 to 7. Um but our lines of credit that we got from the banks have gone from 5 to 12. Right? So the so now what used to be like a really really safe line of credit which was my line my bank line of credit used to be cheaper than any mortgage I could get on a property any loan I could get on a property. And now my line of credit from my, from the bank, which was, it's like, you know, which, it's, which was really, really hard to get is now as expensive as hard money. So when the cost of money goes up, people say like, okay, what could I be spending and getting my money on? The other side of that too, is you could put a hundred thousand dollars in a bank CD right now and get between four and a half and 5% return. That's a five cap with zero risk. Right. So you there's an unlimited amount of five caps available right now with zero risk. You could put a hundred thousand, a million, you know, twenty million dollars in there. So now it's like it's negligible. So everybody's having to say, like, if I'm gonna invest in an apartment instead of my five cap, now 18 months ago, a savings account was only gonna get you half a percent of interest. That's it. No one had savings account, they were stupid. I remember in the 80s we had them, and this is why it was like right now, people are gonna start to have savings account. So investors are going to have to say, um, I need to make essentially four to 5% more than I would otherwise to buy this asset. Otherwise, I should just be buying a, a bank CD right now. I should just be you know, just investing 
in a savings account. So that's the biggest reason it becomes like the cost of money. It doesn't affect houses the same way because people think about houses different, but investors own apartment complexes um, and lenders, if they're going to have to foreclose on an apartment complex, they look at them different and commercial is valued by investors. And all those investors, we have to think about like, would our money be safer in a saving, better in a savings account right now or not? Um, so that's that's the biggest reason. It's like the it's the opportunity cost of that money has pushed cap, cap rates up, and the fact that our lines of credit are so expensive. I could have bought and used my line of credit to buy an apartment, you know, paid a five percent rate for a couple of years before I had to go refinance. But now, if I'm going to do it at twelve, essentially it doesn't work anymore. It's just like, oh, I just physically can't. Even if I'm only doing a seventy percent loan to value, I need to buy a property that's getting me a seven cap return instead of a five. Got it. Um... I'm going to be in your ear for uh, three days in a row down in Costa Rica, by the way. So <laughs> cool. I look forward to meeting you, man. <laughs> um, but I, I, had, I had two questions about that. So what was, why, why the change uh, for savings and, and CDs? Like why, why up to like 5% now? Are they just needing to hold money? And then the, the, the second question I had, and I'll hit mute. Um, if you, if you weren't in your position, you only had three or four houses right now, and you had marginal investors that, that want to jump on with you, what's your route? What are you doing right now? You don't have, you don't have the 150 homes yet. Yeah. The, um, I'm going to be working really, really hard to find the, the deals, finding the deals of the people that are in. So distressed stuff is my stuff. You know, people that are in foreclosures, people that are probate inheriting houses, um, people that are getting divorced, like that's, those are always the best, best deals. So one of my companies sells foreclosure leads, you know, nationwide, uh, we're most well-known in Texas, but the whole idea is somebody's getting a notice that says they're in foreclosure. Um, uh, we cold called a bunch of them today and, and somebody calls us back and says, they'll sell us this house for 240,000 next week. Yeah, it was 210. Uh, and it's worth about 340,000. So the, so we'll end up buying those. Yeah, because if you don't have very many houses, then you usually have time and effort and availability to go do that. So like cold calling, door knocking, those are really, really inexpensive ways to go do it. Even mailers are like, mailers can get expensive, but like, but cold calling and door knocking is the way that I would go do it right now. And the reason those those bank rates are high was essentially the job of the Fed is to try to curb inflation. The job of the Fed is to try to make sure there's less money out there getting spent on everything. Less people buying boats, less people buying cars, essentially less people buying real estate uh, and spending their money. And so when that rate goes up, somebody like me might say, hey, I'm going to put it in a savings account instead of go buy over here. And I want to buy that boat, but let me just put it in the savings account for a few months and I'll buy the boat in a couple months after I make some interest. So it just takes money out of the system. And then it also, when it really, how the, that really takes money out of the system is like when the apartment guys are getting foreclosed on and two to $3 million in equity, that's a, that's money that just vanished overnight. So like they printed money, like during, you know, to do like some of the recovery type stuff. When somebody gets foreclosed on money, just gets extinguished. It's gone. It never comes back. So that two or $3 million is gone. The bank didn't get it. Nobody got it. So it is part of the intention when the fed raises rates to push cap rates up, to bring property values down because there's, you know, because of how valuable commercial is. So it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Um, so yeah, it was, they did that intentionally for sure. Sweet. Anybody else got any questions? Going once, going twice. Anybody in the chat? Right, Hayden. <laughs> right. What you got? All right. My microphone was on wrong. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Here you go. Okay. Perfect. 
Uh, I wanted to ask, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about the courthouse steps. I'm 1099. I have a lot of time freedom. Uh, I want to start going to auctions and learning how the pieces work and everything. How did you get funded? Like, cause, and what does that process look like of what proof of funds is required to go and even be able to bid? Uh, what state are you in? I'm in Tennessee. See, so I'll look up a thing really quick. And guys, we're already past seven. If any of you guys need to jump, too, I'm happy to stay on for a bit. Um, let me see if I can find judicial versus non judicial. All right, so Tennessee is just like Texas. Um, the uh, and so what that means is you have to show up with cash. So if the opening bid is $100,000, you have to show up with $100,000. That's in cashier's checks. The, I've got a whole bunch of classes that I teach on and a bunch of free videos and all sorts of different stuff. Um, but the but that idea is you, you show up with cashier's checks written to you or written to your bidder and you do it like a wallet. You'll do a check that's like 75,000, a check for 25,000, a couple checks for 10. Because when you hand them over your check, they're gonna send you back your refund a few weeks later. Well, time is money and money makes money. And so if you buy a house for $100,000, you want to give them a check for $100,000. You don't want to give them a check for 150. You can never really guess. Like my max bid is 110. You don't know if you're going to bid all the way to 110 or 100. The same thing happens. Like you could show up to auction with $200,000, which means you could buy a house, you could buy three houses for 60, or you could buy, you know, or one house for 150. And so you have those different amounts that gives you flexibility to be go, hey, I, I really hope to spend all my money today. When you first get your funding together, the uh, most of the time, now most people at bid at auction don't actually have the cash themselves. Everybody had to find somebody else to fund them. The most common way at the beginning is to find an investor to fund you. That's how I did it at the beginning. Um, in Texas, we also, now we offer auction financing where we, my company brings checks to auction for people. It's super expensive, hard money, but like, but it helps people go to auction when they wouldn't be able to otherwise. It's probably less expensive than profit splits. The way that I convinced people at the very beginning, my dad was my first investor. His business had pretty much gone out of business. But even though he was my dad, he only had like $250,000 left from his business that he had grown for his whole life. And I had to convince him to invest in me. And he didn't really trust me about it. Like I was telling about this new business that I was inventing. So I followed my playbook and I went to auction for like two or three weeks and I recorded all the results. And said, this is what this one sold for. This is what this one sold for. These were the pictures of it. So I call them dry runs. So before you ever get someone to invest in you, go to auction. Like, look at the list, do the homework, comp them, drive them, say, here's my max bid. I'm going to bid 100,000. Go to auction and say, hey, I would have bought two houses there. Because you might realize you're in a market where it's too competitive or something like that. You have to do that because you don't want to go to auction and then say, I'm going to bid 100,000 on all these and have them all sell for 130. And go, oh, I wasn't even close. I need to go find a different town now or a different something else. You don't want to, and, and then you've got like one shot to get your investor money right. So first, you want to do dry runs where you know I could successfully be good. And then you go present that to your, your possible investors and say, hey, this is what I think I, I can do. Here's how I think I can do it. And you always, my first one, my first two or three, I did for zero profit. My next 10, I did for like 25% of the profit. And then I finally got my way up to where I got 50% of the profit. And then after I'd done a ton of them, now I get most of the profit and investors just get smaller shares. So, but it starts with just doing a dry run, 
showing you can do it. You want to make sure, again, you get one shot with the investor to get it right at the beginning. And so the figuring out like which market, which town, which niche is the one where there's less competition. In Texas, for example, there's still some counties that only have one or two bidders in them, state, you know, statewide. And there's other counties that'll have 50 people bidding on the same house. So I go buy houses where there's one or two people bidding at that county. So I don't have to bid against a bunch of people. Um, you'll, you could find that in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. And Hayden, we'll be going over that strategy, like really, really in depth in, in Costa. Okay. I'll go to some auctions before we go. So I have more questions. I wholeheartedly believe that you will. Aaron, he's, he's a stud. If, if you're, if you're going to warn anyone, this guy, Hayden. Yeah. Reach out. So I've, I've got a, uh, I got a book that's like eight bucks. It'll take you four hours to read it. All of my auction secrets are in it. I get paid 50 cents a time. That's a bigger pockets published one. I, it's, I don't make money on it. But all my like heart and soul secrets. It's called Bidding to Buy. Um, you know, published by Bigger Pockets. So if you're interested, in it, get that, read it for four hours. I've got a longer, like, you know, six-hour course that Kevin attended that I'm selling that. I sell that course as a longer thing. But like read the book, go to some auctions, come talk to me. Uh uh, you know, when we're in Costa Rica or or or, or somewhere else along the way. But the um it's about getting the reps in and going checking out. It's a little bit different in every place and but I, what, again, I like to focus on bidding on the stuff that other people aren't focusing on. So you might find like, hey, in this county, everybody bids on the houses, but nobody bids on the trailer parks or nobody bids on the land or nobody bids on the apartments. Like find the niche that not everybody's bidding on. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Anybody else have any closing questions? Just a few add-ins, man. Just a few add-ins. Here, Kevin and Lucas. All right. Hey, so um, Hayden, I attended my first... Uh, auction the other day man it was it was eye-opening so just just doing that is, is a huge rep like Aaron was saying you know getting ahead of that is is very uh beneficial because now you're competing with everybody who has money and at that auction there was really like two buyers that were buying everything up and they had the earpiece in they were covering the mouth like it was a, like an NFL football game like it was very serious so if you're trying to compete with those people with a hundred grand it's 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 a it's a uphill battle man um, but definitely getting ahead of it, like Aaron was saying, is 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 call those people or try to cold call those people, join on those people to hopefully get them before it goes to the auction. I feel like Hayden could kill it at auction. The benefit of being a new guy is your cost of money is actually less because the guys that are buying ten houses, we've got we've got heavy overhead and like all these other th- all these other considerations that are going in. And when it was first me just going to auction for my dad, I didn't have to think about all the overhead stuff. Like I was able to be so much more competitive. Now, now the guys that have been there for a while, they're going to have more skills, more secrets, more things like that, but they will have to get a higher return than you. So if all of your assumptions are the same, in theory, you should be able to, uh, you know, to beat them, uh, just knowing they're going to have heavier expenses. So I attended a mastermind in Houston and some of them go to uh, text, like they do go to auctions and everything. Have you ever had anyone offer you money to not bid? <clears throat> Yeah, the people offer it all the time. It's super illegal, but they will try to. Um, but they try to get you. I mean, I've been offered hundreds of thousands of dollars to not bid. We've been offered, you know, the we've been offered hundreds of thousands of dollars to not sell our foreclosure report for a month, right? We've been offered more money to not sell our list than sometimes we have in subscriber money for our list because there will be. So I've had I had deals when I'd buy in Napa that my max bid was like seven hundred thousand dollars. I was the only guy that got there on time, and the opening was like three hundred right? Crazy deals, crazy, amazing deals. And if the auction would have started three minutes later, and then the other bidder comes running up and the sale's over. And if he would have gotten there on time, I would have had to bid to 700 to buy it. 
right? So the so there are so you never know when the moment's going to happen. It's like fishing. I tell everybody, you're just going fishing. You're like fishing every day. You never know when you're going to catch the fish. As long as you like, you know, you keep fishing, you'll you'll catch one like that. But yeah, it's a bunch of guys went to jail uh, for auction collusion back in like 2011, 2012. Even one of the trustees was in on it. He spent the rest of his life in prison over that stuff. So people don't realize that, that like they kind of joke about it. They go, don't you bid on this one. I'll bid on the next one. Dude, they got FBI agents. there waiting to catch people with that. Mm. So don't know. do that. Hey, don't, <laughs> don't, if somebody pays you to not bid, don't take it, dude. Okay. Heard that. Thank you. All right, Mr. Lucas. All right. I figured it out. Uh, Hey, Aaron, uh, I'm having trouble finding my uh, buy box. I own mostly single family houses, and I noticed you're, you know, you're buying, seems like everything still. First, at first, I thought you were just buying multifamily, but it looks like you're still buying some houses. So uh, are you just looking for whatever makes money or, I mean, how how, how would you uh, help me figure that yeah, out? So how many houses do you have right now, Lucas? I got uh, 24, 24. Um, they're mostly uh, single family, uh, long-term rentals. I got a... And then I got a couple couple commercial buildings, and then I own one with my business partner also. So cool, you're doing great. What's your biggest challenge with the ones you already own? Um, just cash flow. Um, you know, the cash flow looks good on paper, and you know, but kind of like you said, other people said every time, every single like every every month something breaks, air conditioner air conditioner goes out, and there's my my three hundred four hundred dollar cash flow spoke for the months gone for the year. You know that stuff. I seem like I've had a bunch more vacancies lately. And uh, so that's kind of been hurting me. Um, uh, my short-term rentals aren't doing as good as I thought. I don't think I did good on projecting the numbers and uh, and more issues, you know, more uh, decks need to be redone, trying to make them real nice. So just yeah. cash flow. Think back every every month, I'm, I'm writing a check instead of getting a check. Cool. So like the, that's super, so don't feel bad. Super, super common. That should help you determine your buy box though, right? So that means like if you're buying houses that are older, you got to buy newer houses. Or if you're buying, so like if you're like, hey, I'm getting really strong cash flows out of these houses that were built in like 1980, 1990, I won't buy anything that's built before 2010 anymore. I mean, I own hundreds that were built in like 2000. I own hundreds that were built in like 1990, but those ones we're trying to get rid of. If I'm going to buy something today, it has to be like 2010 and newer. Um, the other thing that you can do as a strategy at the beginning is replace everything, which is kind of crazy, right? So if you, this is one of the things I learned from, from Blackstone. If you buy the house for $100,000 and you just start renting it and your HVAC goes out for 5,000 bucks, you lose five months in rent, right? So now your annual return is down and it takes you from $10,000 a year to $5,000 a year in income. So you, now you have a 5% return. You can't cover your loan. Simple, it's kind of simple numbers. So if you take a $100,000 house and now you pay $7,000 to replace the roof and $7,000 to replace the HVAC system and $2,000 to replace the water heater and the and you do all the you over improve it at the beginning. Let's say now you've spent 120,000 on this thing. Which you're like, "Man, that kind of sucks, but you get a good loan in place on that 120,000. Now you're going to make your your $1,000 a month in rent." So the difference in like cap rate or return, if you spend all the money at the beginning, your return only goes down a little. If you made $10,000 a year on a $100,000 investment or $10,000 a year in a $120,000 investment, the difference is between a 9 and 10% return. Your, your return is only going down 1% if you over-improve at the beginning. So 
when it comes, so when it comes to like, uh, so that's, that's the real quick way if you're struggling with that. So what I would do is I would buy newer, nicer stuff or in your buy box, just plan and your financing and, and all your metrics plan on overdoing these things to where they are brand new to where nothing is going to break over the next little while. Or if it does, it's going to be covered with an HVAC warranty or an appliance warranty or something else like that. Um, again, your return only goes down slightly. Most of it could be packed into the loan anyway. Uh, when I first started buying them, I was like, oh, I probably got a couple of years left in this roof. I probably got a couple of years left in this carpet, whatever. W- water heater, I was never going to replace a water heater, even if it was like lukewarm water coming out of it. I was not going to spend a thousand bucks on a water heater because I could just be like, it's all right. It's kind of warm if you leave it on for a long time. Now we're totally opposite. We're going to over improve the heck out of them um, because I'd rather make the infrastructure investment up front uh, and have it, and have my cash flow be you know solid than uh, than otherwise. Thanks. Cool. Anybody else? Hi, real quick. I have a question about the um, historical occupancy rates versus class A versus B versus C during like 2008, 2009 era. Do you have any data on that, Aaron? Are you asking that? Are you in Japan right now asking that? (laughs) Don't, Don't ask questions. Oh, that's the Bella. The um, oh, yeah, you met camera? are you she's on the are you on the golf course right now? So you want to turn the camera on the um, <laughs> yeah, the robots, uh, my robot caddy with me. The robot caddy is falling. Well, Bella, good to good to hear from you. The um, I didn't think you were gonna make it on this uh, tonight. The I got to chat with Bella about some business stuff in Austin a few weeks ago. Um, so the so your question was like, are the cap rates changing much? Or so occupancy was for class A versus B, class C during 2008, 2009 era. So it's it's a really, really good question of um, so back in 2008, 2009, I, and I think she's asking like, so after the crash, right? So now housing market starts to get adjusted. What happened to um to housing at the time when it came? to rentals. Now I don't have, so I don't have specific data, but I do remember what was going on at that time, uh, which we could, which I could try to push for. Um, And what we found was the, was the class A, everybody seemed to downsize and every, everybody seemed to downsize at first. So the first year or two, what happened is everybody downsized because they were making less money because it wasn't just a housing crisis. There was so much money in economics that was built into it at the time. So you'll see this this strategy where so I think in the next three to six months if we were going to see that we would see in the next three to six months we would see people downsizing shifting from A to B and B to C just to get more affordable because anytime you're trying to budget you look at your income and you try to see like what's my income right and and oh where can we cut oh we can go do this instead but then what ends up happening shortly after that is apartment owners so one of my the apartment that I own this last January we were at seventy percent occupancy. Like it's a class A apartment, right? But we were pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. So what happened when I realized we hit 70%, I dropped all of our rents, two or 300 bucks. I started giving away three months rent. And so now we're at 97% occupancy again, uh, a little bit later. So what'll happen is people downsize from A to B and B to C. So you'll see a higher occupancy in C than A. And then we'll see a price correction where those A buildings say like, okay, now we actually do have to lower prices to hit our numbers again. But um, I'll try to see if I can get some specific stats for it other than just my feeling and my memory uh, to make sure that I can back up some of that and put it on the, your guys' Facebook page a little bit later. Well, 
Yeah, thanks, Aaron. That's super helpful. Just because you always hear Class A operators, I feel, be like saying how Class A renters are typically higher educated, they have more stable jobs, have savings, care about their credit score, et cetera. So it's just something I've always been intrigued by. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great point that I think survives. Like it would, that would be one of those ideas to try to poke holes in because you're right. 90% of the time, class A renters have really good high paying jobs. They do care about their credit hundred percent, but the, um, which, which that goes a long way uh, for things for how long people will stay before they move out. But those are the people that, that when they have a chance to renew, they move. But there are a lot of people in really, really high paid jobs that have now been laid off and like taken out of the work workforce and they aren't getting and they aren't finding new jobs at that same rate. So I think that's probably where we're going to see where nine out of the last 10 years, that would have been totally accurate. But now we're entering a time when some of those class A people are going from making $300,000 a year to $75,000 a year. And that's an amazing hit. Yeah, good point. Thanks. Cool. Good question. Heck yeah. I think we'll call it right there. We've gone for about an hour and a half. So I got to grab some dinner, guys. So I got, I got pizza waiting for me in the other room. Who's all going to go to Costa Rica? That's in here. I'll be there. We got a few people already. The uh, awesome. We should should have about 50 people. Dude, that'll be crazy. Dude, I, I don't know how it happened. (laughs) <laughs> and like that's without advertising like that's without even us like that's just community we haven't even opened it up to the public next I, i'm i'm anticipating this time next year if we don't do one in q1 i bet we have 100 to 300 yeah well i yeah. think that's really cool and you got any of you guys i got added to the your uh your facebook page there you can you can message me questions through there you can go find me on instagram where like that's where i do most of my chats happy to answer more questions. This is like what always happens. I'm always super long-winded. I try to cut my stories way down and it never works. So the- um, We're all you know, perfectly fine with it. Dude. I've had two and a half hour podcast interviews where they get broken up into three just so people don't fall asleep and they're listening. So anyway, thanks thanks for listening. But I love this stuff. You guys message me. Uh, Instagram's probably the best way to message me and I'll see if I can help you with something. Caitlin, can you post uh, the book too in the Facebook page, please? And then yeah, um, of course. link to Roddy's. So your foreclosure, uh, pitch the foreclosure listing service real quick. Yeah. So the, um, you know, so next, so for flsonline.com is Texas foreclosures or prophawk.com, P-R-O-P-H-A-W-K. I thought I was pretty clever with that, but the names suck no matter how, but if we post them, you guys will find them. But the really we do, you know, you track your foreclosures nationwide. It shows you how to do my five steps of like driving by the houses, doing title on them, things like that helps you manage the process. We also have these built-in CRMs where you can circle a neighborhood and text them all that you want to buy their house. You can, you know, you can, you can get their phone numbers and call them. We've got all these different outreach that we do that isn't just at auction. Um, I'm doing like, if, if you follow me on Instagram, like Second week of July, I'm doing like a 30 minute to one hour. It'll probably end up being an hour. I say 30 minutes, but I talk too long. It'll be a one hour free um, webinar. It's essentially the jumpstart course on buying foreclosures where I take people through the five steps of it. So we'll uh, send it you guys out. could join that one and where I go a little deeper. We'll send it out. Cool. Yeah, we'll put it on the Facebook page and I'm going to send that out in the newsletter and everything too. And then maybe we can do, uh, we could do, because the first podcast me and you did, we didn't even talk about real estate. We just talked about everything else. So we talked about a lot, we we talked a lot of stuff. We didn't talk about any real estate. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs>
So we can do that and then have that air right before so we can be able to use that to uh, pitch the webinar. Cool, cool. All right, everyone. Sweet. Thank you so much for coming on. We will go ahead and get all the rest of this booked up. And Caitlin should be running a couple of these Monday calls. I'm going to try to run these in July, but June 29th through August, I'm back in Europe, baby. So we're uh, we're hopping back on the plane. So Aaron, you want to come to Europe with me? We can hold hands. The I have a pretty I dude, I love I love Europe. I love an excuse to go to Europe, but the I've got a pretty we'll see. We'll see. I won't be able to go the whole time, but maybe <laughs> one of the weekends I'll be able to make it out. All right. There. Sweet. See you everyone. Bye everybody. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.